If you just remain standing for a moment, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bible. I'd like to just stand and uh, read the scriptures if we can today. Uh, if you're in at East, uh, go ahead and do that. If you don't have a Bible and would like a Bible, we have a Bible for you. It's a gift from us to you. Um, if you don't have one, just shoot your hand up. Our ushers are coming right now and they'll hand you a free Bible. It's the best gift that we could give to you. And, and so just shoot your hand up if you don't have one. Um, I want you to turn in 1 Kings chapter 16 and 17. We're gonna read a, the end of 1 Kings chapter 16 and the, and the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, and today we're gonna be looking at Elijah. Pastor Brent for the last few weeks have, has, has been looking at Elisha and we're looking at Elijah, and Elijah is the mentor for Elisha. And so I'm really excited to dive into the word uh, today and, and, and just kind of look in. Can we just give a warm welcome to our East Campus and to those who are tuning in right now on live, Facebook Live? Thank you so much. Are you guys there? First Kings chapter 16. I want to start in verse 29, and this is, this is, hear the word of the Lord today. It says this, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Now, at this place in Israel's history, the kingdom was unified, but it is divided into two parts. Uh, there's now a king in Judah, and now there's a king in Israel, and so that's why you hear this. In this book, the first kings, is really a story about these kings, and so let's keep reading. It says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered, considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, he's a former king, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple and also an Ashtarah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than, than any other king before him. Now, if you'll skip down to chapter 17, verse 1, here is our main character. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. I want you to, I want you to hear that because we're going to spend a, a great portion on this. There's so much happening in that statement. Then it goes on to say, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, that, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there has been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him again, go at once to Zarephath, to Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water and a jar so I have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called and said, bring me also a piece of bread. Another translation says, a morsel of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make me a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour 
will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. Now I wanna talk to you today about how your vision of God can become blind. But I wanna show you how God restores our vision, how we get our eyes back. So I wanna ask this question as we begin today. How does God transform our eyes again? Can he open my eyes again? And ultimately, when God transforms our sight, it actually has an effect on the rest of our lives. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, he said, when your eyes are good, your whole body is good. But when your eyes are bad, then your body is bad as well. And so how do we go from dark to light? How do we go from blind to seeing? And so my message today, my title for my message today is this, and I think you'll know this title pretty well. It's, I can see clearly now that the rain is gone. You remember that song by Jimmy Cliff? Now, I got a confession. Uh, God did not give me the gift of serenading like he, he did Pastor Brent. Um, and so this is what I want to do. I want to up the ante uh, as you greet each other. Can you turn to two people and sing those lyrics to them, all right? I want to hear it. All right, can you, can you do that for me? Take a couple minutes and greet each other. Would you sing it to them? <laughs> You can take a seat. <laughs> I don't know if that was a good idea. It's getting out of hand in here. You know, I've lived a lot of different places in my lifetime, and uh, every place I've lived has had some form of extreme weather attached to it. Um, I used to live in upstate New York, and where I lived was known as the snow capital of North America. Uh, I'm not kidding. There was a ton of snow there. You'd go into church on Sunday, um, and then there would be like, bare parking lot, grass everywhere. And when you came out after a normal service, it wasn't a revival service or anything, it was just a normal service, um, you would walk out and your car would be buried. It was that bad. People would actually like keep a shovel in their trunk to dig themselves out wherever they went. It was, a, it was just, it was awful. Um, I lived in a lot of different places. I've lived in Southern Nova Scotia. If you've ever been down there, you can only see for about 300 days of the year because there's like extreme fog all the time. Um, lived in Florida for a year, and in that one year, I, I, I experienced three hurricanes. Three hurricanes. Come on, y'all, that's dangerous, right? Um, but nothing takes the cake like living in Alabama. That's right, sweet home, Alabama, right? I lived in Birmingham, Alabama for five years from the age three to, to age eight. That's where I actually learned to talk. And y'all don't know this, but I used to speak Southern. <laughs> I, I did. Now, I, I do have proof of this. Um, I, I was actually looking in my family archives. Uh, I have a, uh, a video my dad shot. I think it's on video cassette. You, you remember those video cassettes? Um, video cassette, and it's my third birthday party, and I'm opening gifts, and I open up this gift, and it's a stuffed dog, and this is what I say. I promise you, this is what I said. I said, look, Mom, it's a doggy. <laughs> now, some of you want me to preach like that, don't you? You keep going that way, right? But nothing takes the cake like extreme weather in Alabama. And I don't know why, but when it hails there, it's not just small little bits of ice. It's like softball-sized hail. I mean, that was dangerous enough, but the worst thing in Alabama are the tornadoes. Now, if you've ever experienced a tornado, 
it's one of the scariest weather phenomenons you can ever experience in your lifetime. And they had tornadoes down there. And what made it worse where I lived in Alabama is that they had these huge, like massive tornado horns. And when those suckers went off, um, it scared the living daylights out of me. I, I, I won't lie to you. I used to cry when I heard them. But when those went off, it didn't matter where you were, what you were doing. You just, you just, chaos erupted. You just went home as fast as you can. You grabbed your survival pack. You got in your basement. If you didn't have a basement, you got in your bathtub and threw a mattress on you. Now, our family was the praying type, so we'd be praying, oh, dear Jesus we know that you love us and want to spare us. And so if you would just will that tornado to the other neighborhood, <laughs> we just pray that in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord, right? <laughs> but don't judge me, by the way. You've never been in a tornado before. You'll pray anything so you won't die. But that's our response to extreme weather, is it not? We just kind of, we assume that the worst is happening or that it will actually happen happen, don't, don't we? I mean, even this past Tuesday, was it Tuesday that we had ice? Yeah, you remember that? Uh, I came home, and when I walked through the door, my wife looks at me, and she goes, Seth, the power flickered. <laughs> now, I got the bathroom, the tub is filled with water, the candles are out, get your cell phone on that plug, we need that thing, Seth, come on, I mean, I mean, isn't that how we act, we kind of get extreme, and I don't know if you've seen this on TV before, but sometimes the people that are supposed to give us peace in those times, they kind of go extreme as well. Now, I gotta show you a clip here from a national news station in the United States. When last year, Hurricane Matthew came up along Florida, um, and as an American, let me just say something, as an American, I can say that Americans don't tend to be extreme with a lot of things, um, but this is just way over the top, all right? And you have permission to laugh at this, um, but just, just see this, and you can hang on till the end. Do we have that clip? We have some noise? I don't think we have, we don't think we have audio. That's okay. Lots of people here in the United States oh, here we go. Okay. they're not going anywhere. We will not cover your funerals, and we will not feel sorry for you. They're stocking up supplies, boarding up their homes, and hoping, which is moronic. Matthew is a... Despite the warnings, lots of people here in the United States have said they're not going anywhere. We will not cover your funerals, and we will not feel sorry for you. They're stocking up supplies, boarding up their homes, and hoping, which is moronic. Matthew is a rare Category 4 hurricane. This animation shows a look at the scale of the damage that we expect there. If it hits the way they're predicting, this is what we expect. Winds could reach speeds at times of 155 miles an hour. Over on our wall, a look at the storm track. The forecasters today have expanded the area where the, where the storm may hit. See this? Melbourne, Daytona Beach, all the way up to Jacksonville. This moves 20 miles to the west, and you and everyone you know are dead. All of you. Because you can't survive it. It's not possible, unless you're very, very lucky. And your kids die, too. <laughs> I mean, isn't that crazy? But I mean, that's how we think. We just perceive the, the, the worst of things, right? But what I want to do for you today is I want to shift your mind, all right? And I want to ask this question. What if God allows extreme seasons to happen in your life, not for your harm, but for your good? You know, what if, what if the season that you're going through right now, 
or the one that you just came through or the one that's on the horizon that you don't see, and it might be extreme, is actually for your good and not for your harm. What if I told you that when extreme times come, maybe you ought to receive them and think of the best in them rather than the worst? Because let me remind you something about the unveiling series that we have. Our theme is this, that God is doing more in the unseen reality than than we often see or comprehend in the seen reality. And what I want to do today is I want to peel back your perception for a moment to show you how God uses extreme things to open our eyes. Remember, the question is, can God open our eyes again, how he's going to give our vision back to see clearly again. Because what we read in 1 Kings chapter 16 is that King Ahab and God's people have gone completely blind. They have lost their sight. They have put their focus on the God of Baal and they've taken their focus off off of the God of Israel. And they no longer see God. And the scripture says that it provokes God. Now that word provoke means like to be angry or to be indignant, to be vexed. And I don't know if you've ever been provoked before, uh, but you don't say stay silent very long. And God doesn't stay silent very long either. And so his action to the people is to send Elijah into the land and to declare this drought, this extreme season upon the people. And we're going to talk about what this drought means in just a few minutes. But what makes this passage so fascinating is that one time these people could see clearly. They weren't blind. Their vision was clear. Now, we don't have time to go through all of this, but if you were to read the first eight chapters of 1 Kings, you would see that these people saw very, very clearly. These are the same people who had God's favor upon them. These are the same people who were, who were enjoying the blessings of God. These are the same people who were there when Solomon built the temple. These are the same people on the day of dedication where Solomon prays to heaven and fire comes down from heaven. They, they saw this. Their eyes were clearly open. If you're here at the valley, you'll know the prayer is actually on the back wall here. That's the prayer that was prayed that day. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and I will hear their land. They were there on that day. They could see God. But a few generations go by and the people of Israel and the king have lost their sight and they have become blind to God. And one of the questions I want to ask is this. How do you become blind when you could once see? Maybe some of you know who I'm talking about right now. Maybe it's a brother of yours, a sister of yours. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's someone you know very closely who once could see. The presence of God was in their life. But over time, they began to lose their sight. Maybe you're contending for someone right now in prayer. And you know them. You got them on your heart right now. They've lost their sight. Maybe it's you. Maybe you've lost your sight. And you're wondering, how in the world did that happen? Here's something I know to be true. And I've seen this in my life, and I've seen this time and time again. Oftentimes, your eyes will become blurry before they become blind. Your eyes will become blurry before you become blind. Now, how many of you have blurry vision? 
Some of you? Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? I mean, if I didn't have contact lenses on right now, I couldn't see anybody, right? And uh, true story, uh, when I was uh, first when I was first falling in love and I asked my wife to marry me, uh, we went on our honeymoon to the Dominican Republic. And at the time, I didn't have a lot of money. And so I just started saving up money. My financial plan was don't eat and don't turn on the heat. Um, if you want the book, I can get it to you later, signed autograph on it. It was a stupid plan. Don't do it, all right? Um, but I, I saved up this money. I was so excited to go. And we get, down, we get down to the Dominican. The first thing I do is I jump in the ocean, and my right contact goes into the ocean. Now, I, I lose contacts all the time, but the worst thing was is I forgot to pack extras. So my whole honeymoon, I walked around like this. And after about a day of looking stupid, I decided to uh, take the other one out, so I was just, I couldn't see anything. I can tell you the Dominican smelled good, <laughs> tasted good, didn't see very much, right? Um, but your eyes become blurry before they become blind. You see, the people in 1 Kings chapter 16 and 17 were totally blind, but it didn't begin there. In fact, if we look back at 1 Kings chapter 11, and I'm just going to take you there real quick, I want to just read where the people of God and where the king began to lose their vision. Look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the uh, Sidonites, the Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. That's a key, key phrase. He had 700 wives of royal birth. Think about that for a moment. 700 wives? That's like averaging two anniversaries a day. That's, that's crazy. And 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. And as Solomon grew old, the, his wives turned his hearts heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Now, I don't want you to miss this because there's a huge principle here. Are you ready? You will begin to become blind when you compromise the eternal for something that's temporary. You will become blind when you begin to compromise something that is eternal, the God that is eternal, when you begin to turn your eyes onto something that is temporary. Now, there's an even, even deeper truth here, okay? I want you to hear this. Compromise is often never out of evil intent. But in the process of falling in love with something or someone else other than God. Did you catch the phrase in that passage? It says that Solomon held fast to them in love. And here's what I know to be true, church. You can't love two things at once. You just can't. I mean, uh, when you love something, your affections, when you, your affections will be given to one single thing. And that one single thing will then dictate your time. It will dictate how you spend your money. You will create values and attitudes and habits around the one thing that you love. How many, how many of you still remember when you, got in when you fell in love with your spouse? Remember that, those days? Pastor Brent and I actually, uh, we roomed together for a little while. And when we roomed together, we were both engaged to our, our wives-to-be. And let me tell you, it changed our lives, right? We spent our money differently. 
We spent our time differently. We hung out. We didn't hang out with any of our friends anymore. When Friday came, we got in my 92 9, uh, Saab 9000. We bombed it to Fredericton because we were in love, right? And so, uh, and, and it's true, when you fall in love, and there's nothing wrong with love, but love, when you love something, you naturally put, put up blinders to everything else around you. Is that not true? And so what we see here in the scriptures is that the people of God have put up blinders and they cannot see around them. But here's my first point. I want to, I want to give this to you uh, today. It says, here's my first point. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. If you want to see clearly, you've got to see your blindness. If you want to see clearly, you've got to see your blindness. You know, one of the things I've discovered is that if you want to keep your vision you have to be vigilant about protecting your vision. Now, when I was a kid, uh, my parents used to do this for me. And one of the ways they did this is that I was never allowed to play sports on Sunday morning. And I remember having to go to practice during the week and kind of feeling embarrassed about it. But looking back, I know what they were doing. They were telling me, Seth, we are keeping your vision. Don't turn your eye don't become blind. Don't become blurry. Your first love is not your sports schedule. It's God. And listen, I'm not here today on a soapbox to rant and rave about your kid's sports schedule. I'm not, really. I love sports growing up. I think they're great. I think they're a blessing from God. There's nothing wrong with them. You, you meet good lifelong friends. It's awesome to play on a team. It's good to be involved. My dad was my coach. But I gotta ask you this question, parents. Are you helping or hurting your kid's vision? What about you? Now, I've been ministry for about 10 years now, and time and time again, I've watched people slowly lose their sight because they didn't protect their vision. And it's the same pattern over and over again. One Sunday turns into every other Sunday. Every other Sunday turns into a month. One month turns into every other month, and it's not because they don't love God. No, that's not the reason when I talk to people. It's because they have fallen in love with something else instead of God. Maybe it's their freedom. Maybe it's their sleep. Maybe it's hockey. Maybe it's something else. But what happens is, is when you start to go down that road, your gaze will soon turn to another direction. The blinders will come up, and you'll wake up someday and say, where in the world? What happened? And over time, you lose your sight. Compromise is one way to lose your sight, but apathy will do it too. But if you're going to see clearly again, you've got to see your blindness. Now, some of you are way too smart, and you're saying, that's an oxymoron. How can you see when you are blind? Good question. Thank you for asking. I appreciate that. The simple answer is this. You can't. God has to open your eyes. And just as there is a process to becoming blind, God has a process for us to opening our eyes again. And this is where Elijah comes into play. I want to read again 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at this again, because uh, this is just so huge. Uh, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, the Tish, uh, from Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain. He's calling down this drought in the next few years except at my word. Now, if you know anything about Elijah, Elijah's probably the most famous prophet in all of the Old Testament. Um, Jesus mentions him a lot in the New Testament. And his, uh, his like, name to fame thing that he does 
is in a couple chapters actually where he calls fire down from heaven where there's a showdown between the god or the, the prophets of Baal and the prophet Elijah and we're going to we're going to investigate that we're going to look at that in a couple weeks and I'm super excited to, to dive into that story but before Elijah calls down fire he calls down a drought now this is important now, I want you to see this all right I don't want you to miss this before you experience the fire You've got to experience the drought. Some of you are saying, what? Listen, we all want the fire. But sometimes you can't have the fire until you experience the drought. Because catch this, drought is the process for you to then see the fire. Drought is the staging ground to the fire. And this is my second point. If you want to write it down, it's this. If you want to see clearly again, you've got to see the process. You've got to see the process. Did you know that God has a process for opening your eyes again? And the way God, God does this is through drought. Now, I want to say something to you before we jump into this and unpack this, because I want you to see how this unfolds, because it's really, really cool, all right? Now, I want you to understand something. A drought is not a storm. A drought is not a storm. You can see a storm coming in your life. You can see a storm leaving in your life. You can prepare for a storm. Even when storms come uh, suddenly in your life, you can make it through a storm, right? Uh, that layoff is a storm. That medical procedure is a storm. That diagnosis is a storm. That panic attack, that's a storm. That, it, that depression, it's a storm. And all of us have storms, but a drought is not a storm. And one of the reasons it's not is you cannot see a drought coming. You just can't. Because a, when, when a drought comes, one nice day turns into one nice week. You just think you're having a great time. One week turns into one month. But around three months, when things start to get real crusty and dry and empty, that's when you realize, wait a second, I'm in a drought. This is why King Ahab doesn't kill Elijah outright, because he doesn't believe the forecast. He cannot see the drought coming. But someday, he will wake up with the rest of Israel, find the land empty and barren and dry, and it will begin to sink in what is really happening. You see, drought is a time of nothingness and emptiness. It is not a storm. Now, let me tell you what drought does. This is how God opens our eyes. Now, I want you to just get your study glasses on for a moment because we're going to dive in pretty deep here for just a few minutes. And I want to show you how the process of drought works. And I want to tell you that I've seen this happen in my life as I've gone through drought in my own life. And here's how it works. Drought does two things for you. The first thing it does is that it exposes. It exposes. It exposes. And it will expose the very thing, the person, the idea, or whatever it is that you have put before God and show you that it is a fraud. Now, in 1 Kings, the people have turned their eyes on Baal. And I just want to talk about Baal for just a second. Baal was the supreme god of the Canaanites. This dude was a victorious god. He was the son of a god uh, called El, but Baal was the most victorious God. But Baal's main responsibility was to enable the earth to produce crops and to produce people, for, to, to produce people right? Um, he was the fertility God of the earth. Now catch this. 
So when it rained, the people of Baal would worship. But notice what Elijah says. I want you to catch it now. Notice what he says. He says, as long as the Lord of Israel lives, it will not rain, nor will there be dew for three years. In other words, what he's saying is, Baal doesn't control the rain. Yahweh does. You see, part of the process of seeing God clearly again is that God must expose how deficient and impotent that thing that you have replaced him with really is. Now, maybe God isn't exposing the God of Baal in your life today. Maybe for some of you, you've never even heard of the God of Baal until today. But maybe God is exposing another type of God in our lives. And this is what I've discovered. God isn't often exposing some foreign, strange God from another culture in my life. But oftentimes, God will expose a false perception of what I have placed on him. I don't know, I've seen this time and time again in my life. I've talked to many people. What they do is they take their experience. They take their feelings. Maybe in a formative time of their life. Maybe uh, it was a time of rejection or a time of abuse. Or maybe it was uh, just even religion at some point. Maybe it was just a time of, of loneliness or betrayal. And they take that experience. They take that feeling, whatever it is. And then they project it on God. But the worst thing is, is that not only do you project it on, on God, you begin to believe that projection about God. God, and that God cannot suffice what your heart needs, and so people will then reach out for something else in their life. And so oftentimes, the God that people have is their perception of the God that they really want and really need, but they're blind. They're blinded by their own perception. This is why, and I'm not meaning to go off tonight, but um, this is why I really don't like it when people tell me, if I walked into your church, the ceiling would cave in. Drives me crazy. You know why? And this is what I, this is what I, I came up this week with my new answer for that question. My answer to them is this, you're wrong. If you came into our church and it caved in, it's not because you came into the room, it's because God came into the room. And his people were so white hot for his presence that he came and he shook the place and the, and the, and the, and the, and the ceiling caved in. Would that be, I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? That's a good, come on, church. I mean, isn't that a good answer? My goodness. Yeah. But sometimes the God that has to be exposed is the false perception of the one our hearts are truly longing for. And drought does that. It exposes. But there's a second thing drought does. It disrupts. It disrupts. All of Israel would have been disrupted. There would have been economical disruption. In that day, the, may, the way you made money was you were a farmer, agricultural uh, sort of place, right? And so you would have lost your crops and it would have been, uh, you would have felt it on your wallet and chances are your crops would have died. And I'm not an, uh, you know, I'm not an economist, whoops, I'm not an economist, but the, the price of food would have gone up, right? So they would have felt it upon their wallet. There was a disruption economically. There was also a disruption ecologically, when drought comes, the wetlands dry up. There's no more fish. 
all the animals would go to another location where they could get food. And so you would see a disruption ecologically. You would also see one socially. I'm sure when drought comes, it's not the most pleasant time. And so probably the rate of, of, of uh, thievery and, and, and just, uh, just people going after each other, crime would have risen, r- risen. But when the drought comes, there would have been disruption. Now, if you're like me, you'd, I don't like disruptions. We don't like disruptions. But there's one thing I know to be true, church, is that those times of disruptions are often the most transformational. If you get a chance to check out the life of Joseph, you want to talk about a guy who deals with a disruption? If you look back in the book of Genesis, this guy, Joseph, God gives him a dream about himself. Do you know that God has a dream for you? And the dream that he gives Joseph is that he would be a ruler someday. And so that's the dream he gives, and he starts proclaiming that, he starts receiving that, he starts accepting that, he starts declaring that over his life. And the next thing you know, the guy's thrown into a pit, he goes to Potiphar's house, he goes into prison before he hits the palace. His disruption was 11 years long, but that was the time that was needed for God to transform his character so that when he got into a place of rulership, then he would be the type of ruler that God wanted him to be. so sometimes God has, God has something for you. He has an ideal person for you to be, and you're not there yet, but the tool that God uses to get you there is oftentimes times of disruption. Now, let me, let me uh, I'm going to illustrate this for you. Man, this thing's falling off my ear. Sorry about that. I'm getting, I'm getting worked up up here. Sorry about that. This is you right here. This represents you, this circle. And everything in this circle is your life. It's your experiences, it's your feelings, it's how you interpret things, it's everything about you. Now, oftentimes, we, I hear people say this all the time, how can we get more God in our lives? So we kind of look at God being down here and about trying to add him to things like this. And that's just the wrong way to think of God, right? Now, I want to show you this. This is, this is what God is. God has his own circle. And it's like this. And what happens is when God starts breaking in right here, you notice this kind of friction? I like to call it rupture. And these rupture moments here are the times that God is wanting to transform your life. It's in those times of disruption. When God is trying to break in, it creates friction here. And and in those rupture moments is where God begins to do his most transformational work in people's lives. I've seen this time and time again, even in my own life. Now, there's there's something to be said about this for, for just a second, right? When God starts to break in, you have two choices. You can either yield or you can resist. That's your choices. And if you resist what tends to happen is that your shell becomes even harder. But when you yield, it is a moment where God can then transform your life, right? We are left with a choice in those moments of disruption. Disruption creates an opening. It creates an opportunity for change. It is here that we have a chance again to see clearly. Drought is the process of exposing and it's the process of disrupting. But if you're going to see the fire someday, there are times you have to go through the drought. You have to, if you want to see clearly, you've got to see the process. 
Now, can we just be honest for a moment? Aren't there some days that you just love God, but you just don't love his process? Let me tell you something about drought. Drought is not a punishment. Drought is a preparation. If God wanted to punish you, he would have sent a flood. In fact, Paul says the wages of sin is death. Drought is not a death. It is a discipline, but it is not a death. And some of us, we hear that word discipline, and we don't like that word discipline. But if I can be just boldly open with you, I would rather be under God's discipline than to be blind. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, let me just read this to you. Take courage in this. This is what Hebrews chapter 12 says, verse 6. It says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Now endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you read a little bit further down, now watch this. It says this, God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness, in order that we might see the fire. You see, drought is the groundwork to receiving the fire. But if you want to see God clearly, you've got, you've got to see the process. But here's something I know to be true. God's discipline isn't just for our good. God's discipline is also from his good. And here's my third point. If you want to see clearly, you've got to see his goodness. Can I just, can I just declare something over this place today? God is good. And when we talk about God's goodness... We are not talking about his behavior as that God is behaving well and so therefore he's good. No, when we talk about God's goodness, we are talking about his infinite disposition towards you and I. It's out of his goodness comes his kindness. It's out of his goodness comes his grace. It's out of his goodness comes his long suffering. It's out of his goodness comes his sympathy. You see, God, it says, was provoked to anger, but he responds. Listen, my goodness. Should have gone with the handheld. He responds in sympathy toward them. You know, your behavior doesn't determine the goodness of God. God doesn't decide to be good. He doesn't just flip on a switch and say, I think I'm going to be good today. We don't provoke the goodness of God. God doesn't feel good, and so therefore he is good. God is good. He always has been good, and God always will be good. He has created you out of his goodness, and he's wanting to redeem you out of that very same reason. Let me say it this way. God is internally inclined to bless you. And no matter what season you are in, the intensity of his goodness never changes. It is perfect. It is infinite. It is eternal. Which means God is good even when I am not good. And so when drought comes in your life, when the extreme seasons come, I want you to see it from the perspective of God is being good. And we can see that in our text here. If we can continue to read, it says this in, in verse 2 of chapter 17. It says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And he says, leave here, turn eastward 
Now, going east in the scriptures is very significant. Going east and turning uh, eastward is it's like turning towards God. In the, in the Garden of Eden, Eden was actually east, the eastern part of the garden. Uh, when you went to the temple, you entered in through the east side. So when people are turning east, it's a picture of them turning towards God. And so it says this, that uh, go east and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I will direct the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. And he went to the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan and he stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Now, what is going on here? This is just a kind of a strange scene. And this is what I believe as I was preparing and praying through this passage. That what God is doing in this moment is that he's using Elijah to the people in drought, to all of Israel and even to King Ahab, to remind them of how good he is. You see, I don't think Elijah was the only one at this little river drinking from the brook. Because when there's drought in the land, people will go anywhere where there is water. So I see the nation of Israel assembled along the, the, the riverbank with their faces in the water, drinking it as Elijah is drinking it. And every morning and every night, Elijah is receiving food from, from the ravens. It is a reminder of how, God, how good God is because they would have a mental understanding that at one time in their history, when they were themselves were in the wilderness, that God was good to them when he provided manna and quail to them. It would have been a reminder that God is good. God has always been good. You know, one of the reasons why it's important to be here in church is because every weekend, it's a reminder. We remind ourselves that God is good. He's good. Do you know that we need to be reminded of his goodness? That he's always been good, that he is good? And he'll always be good. But there's more going on here about his goodness. And I just want to read this to you. And I want this picture to just emerge, if I can. Because we're running out of time. It says this, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Of course it would. Now, does that mean that God's goodness and grace dries up? No. It just means that living off the river and the ravens, are no longer sufficient. But there's something else that is even more sufficient here. And I want you to see this, okay? I want to read the scripture. This is what it says, verse eight. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath, the region of Sidon, and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar? You've heard this before. And as she was going to get it, he called. He said, would you pre please bring me a morsel of bread, one piece of bread? And she says, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little olive oil and a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And they're being affected by the drought too. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread. Make this morsel of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said, that the jar of flour 
will never be used up. And the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the land. Now it's kind of an odd story, kind of the same as the ravens in the river. But I want you to see that what is going on here is that there is now a different means of God's goodness. It has gone from a river and a raven now to one morsel of bread that has endless resources. And I hope this picture is now unfolding in your mind because this is a foreshadow of what is coming. But it is available right now to you and I. Because over your life and my life today, God has already provided for you a morsel of bread. One piece of bread. And his name is Jesus. And out of Jesus comes the endless resources that never run dry. Jesus said himself, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Listen, whatever it is that you try to put before God, Jesus is better. Whatever is taking up your time, Jesus is better. Whatever is asking for your affections right now, Jesus is better. Whatever is fighting against you right now, Jesus is better. Whatever your eyes are fixed on right now, Jesus is better. Second Peter chapter one, verse three says, it's his divine power. His divine power has given us everything we need for our godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Listen, church, the fire is coming, but before you and I experience the fire, we've got to experience the trout, the drought. I know his process sometimes doesn't seem easy, but he's calling you out of his goodness. And today he wants to open your eyes so that you can see again. And maybe you're here today and you know that you're blind. You just know it. Let him open your eyes today. Take the blinders off. Turn your gaze to him so that you can see again. The Bible says that this act of turning is called repentance. I love what Paul says. He says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. You see, repentance is our response to God's initiative. And God's initiative to you is that he is, he is sitting there holding out to you that morsel of bread, his son, Jesus. Repentance is that I choose to reach out and to take it. But when we repent, you can only do it for yourself. I can't reach out for you. Pastor Brent can't reach out for you. You have to reach out for yourself. You have to take it. Repentance is the beginning of seeing clearly again. And in just a second, what I want to do is I want to pray for us all together for God to open our eyes for the first time. But there's something else here, and I, and I, and I know this to be true. We're almost done. Repentance doesn't just open your eyes for the first time. It keeps them open. I don't know about you, but my contacts lens, they constantly get dirty. And I constantly have to, uh, to go and get them cleansed. I hate having dirty lenses. <laughs> I do. Because there's smudges, there are blind spots, 
And time and time again, I have to go and I have to turn, I have to receive, I have to be cleansed again. You see, repentance is the same for us. Repentance is not just an event, church. It's a practice. And God has provided everything you need to see clearly. But you have to be active. You have to take action. And maybe you're here today. And maybe you're not blind and you know you're not blind, but God is revealing right now by his Holy Spirit that there are smudges in your life. That there are blind spots in your life. And God is saying, your vision is blurry in this area of your life. But out of my goodness, you can see again clearly. Listen, don't let resistance keep you from God transforming your eyes so that you can see again. Would you stand with me? I want to pray. How about we all pray this together in our hearts as we, as we, as we close. Dear Jesus, I have been blind. I know it. You've revealed it to me. And I want to see again. I want to see clearly. And so I take my focus from the thing that I have been putting in the place of you. And I turn my gaze to you. Thank you, God, for sending us that morsel of bread. I receive it into my life. And I ask God for you to do a work in me. Transform me, Lord. I yield myself over. I yield myself to what you're doing, to the breaking in, to the rupture moments, to the disruption of my heart and my life. And God, for those of us that have smudges, those of us who have blind spots, I pray that God, you would give us the courage and the and, the, and a heart of action to be able to go and see those, Lord. I know that this is kind of a strange message as we talk about drought, but God, I pray for my own life. I, I want to experience the fire again. But I know there's a process till we get there. And I pray, I just pray that this time, Spirit, would you just come? Would you just work in, in the hearts and lives of us, God, as we're here today, God? Would you just be shining your light upon areas? Would you expose, would you disrupt, Lord? And we know it's out of your goodness that you do this for us, God. But I just pray, would you do that in this place? Holy Spirit, come, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.